Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, New England Patriot, Lemuel Haynes. In Lexington, Massachusetts, not far from where I grew up, there's a statue of a Minutemen. The Minutemen were a militia group in revolutionary-era America, named for their readiness to fight the British with one minute's notice, which is pretty quick, though still one minute longer than it now takes for the British to fight with themselves. The fellow depicted by the statue looks calm and collected, yet resolute. He looks ready to fight in a noble cause, and he looks white. In fact, the statue is probably intended to represent the group's leader, Captain John Parker, but it could have shown a black man instead. As we've already mentioned in a previous episode, people of African heritage fought in the Revolutionary War, on both sides. Of those who fought on the American side, some of them were Minutemen. Among them was Lemuel Haynes. Today we remember Haynes, not simply for his service in the war, but above all for an unfinished essay, never published during his lifetime, thought to have been written in the same year as the Declaration of Independence, but only rediscovered in the early 1980s. This philosophical work, so long hidden from view, is about the very thing he and the other Minutemen were fighting for, liberty, which Haynes argued should be further extended to include the emancipation of all slaves. Though Haynes is not depicted in the Minuteman statue at Lexington, or in another Minuteman statue at Concord, we do have at least one image of him, the frontispiece from an 1837 biography. It shows a thoughtful man with a gentle, rather round face. He looks more likely to offer you a cuddle than fire a shot in anger. Yet in his essay, Liberty Further Extended, Haynes argued with fiery passion that the principles underlying the American uprising against the British would, if consistently applied, also require the elimination of slavery. This essay did not make a name for Haynes in his own time, or even for the following two centuries, but he was well known as black pastor to a number of white churches at a time when most black people in America were not even allowed to read and write. And his contemporaries did know something of his fiery rhetoric, thanks to a witty and rather savage sermon in which he compared a rival theologian to Satan. Haynes was born in West Hartford, Connecticut in 1753 to a white woman who gave him up because he was mixed race. His father, whose name we do not know, is thought to have been an enslaved African. His mother was, we believe, a Scottish immigrant and servant girl named Alice Fitch. Lemuel inherited his last name from neither of his parents, but rather from his mother's employer, John Haynes, in whose house he was born. This namesake, however, had no desire to keep him, so he was indentured as a servant at the age of five months to the family of David Rose in Granville, Massachusetts. The Rose family appeared to have treated him as a valued member. They were very pious, and as he grew older, Haynes duly found Christ himself while sitting under an apple tree. One might say that, like Isaac Newton, he was suddenly struck by the gravity of his situation, in his case the state of sin that affects all humans. Wicked as we are, we must recognize that all our desires are motivated by selfish interests, even the desire to be saved from damnation. We can only hope and pray to receive the divine grace that will regenerate our souls, allowing us finally to love God and our fellow humans without being motivated by mere self-interest. 
With these ideas, Haynes was following the teachings of the New Divinity School, also called Consistent Calvinists, for their insistence that every human desire is sinful in the absence of grace. He also had no hesitation in accepting the determinism of the Calvinist tradition, remarking that fortune or chance is an illusion, and trusting that everything happens according to a divine plan. He therefore accepted the new divinity idea that the created world is a fundamentally good place despite the pervasiveness and inevitability of human sin. God overrules evil by turning bad actions to good ends. The central example of this would be the crucifixion of Christ, an evil act that opened a path to salvation for all of humankind. The new divinity theologians were followers of the early American philosopher Jonathan Edwards, whose 1754 treatise, Freedom of the Will, argued along traditionally Calvinist lines that God in his omnipotence foreordains all things. Yet Edwards taught that we are still morally blameworthy for our sins, since when we choose them, as we are predestined to do, we make this choice out of selfish desire. Though you might suppose that the enslaving of other people would be a perfect example of acting on such desires, this was not so clear at the beginning of the Edwardsian tradition. Edwards himself owned slaves, and never called slave-owning a sin, though he did think that the slave trade should be brought to an end to be replaced with missionary work to bring Christianity to Africa. Yet, he allowed that slaves already held in America could legitimately be kept. By contrast, his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., was an abolitionist, as was another leading new divinity thinker named Samuel Hopkins, who seems to have come to his views after being exposed to the brutality of the slave trade while living in the trading coastal town of Newport, Rhode Island. Both the younger Edwards and Hopkins made the point that it seemed, to put it mildly, inconsistent for the Americans to be rising up against the tyranny of British rule while condoning the ownership of slaves. Edwards Jr. and a co-author named Ebenezer Baldwin published an essay against slavery, in which they wrote, If it be lawful and right for us to reduce the Africans to a state of slavery, why is it not as right for Great Britain, France, or Spain, not merely to exact duties of us, but to reduce us to the same state of slavery to which we have reduced them. In a similar vein, Hopkins asserted that, where liberty is not universal, it has no existence, and implored his fellow Americans, Rouse up then, my brethren, and assert the right of universal liberty. You assert your own right to be free in opposition to the tyrant of Britain. Come be honest men, and assert the right of the Africans to be free in opposition to the tyrants of America. We cry up liberty, but know it, the Negroes have as good a right as we can pretend to. The point could also be invoked by the British when sneering at the American revolutionaries, as in a famous quote from Samuel Johnson, how is it we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? There's a third and final example of opposition to slavery by white new divinity theologians that we must mention before turning back to Haynes. In September of 1774, Levi Hart, a close associate of Hopkins, delivered a noteworthy sermon entitled Liberty Described and Recommended, in which he discusses the nature of political freedom, the nature of spiritual freedom, and the connections between these two. According to Hart, civil liberty is the unconstrained ability to act for the public good, which means that one can justifiably be constrained by one's society only if one is acting for private benefit in a way that works against the public good. Slavery, from this vantage point, is clearly not a justifiable constraint on anyone's liberty, but rather a case of acting for private benefit against the public good. 
Hart therefore attacks slavery as a palpable and flagrant violation of the law of nature, and demands to know, when, oh when, shall the happy day come that Americans shall be consistently engaged in the cause of liberty, and a final end be put to the cruel slavery of our fellow men? We know that this sermon made an impact on Haynes, because he quotes that climactic question of Hart's in his own Liberty Further Extended, the title of which rhymes, perhaps even intentionally, with Hart's Liberty Described and Recommended. The full title of Haynes's essay is Liberty Further Extended, or Free Thoughts on the Illegality of Slave Keeping, wherein those arguments that are used in its vindication are plainly confuted, together with a humble address to such as are concerned in the practice. The previously unknown manuscript was discovered by historian Ruth Bogan, along with a poem by Haynes entitled The Battle of Lexington. While he was not at that famous battle, which kicked off the Revolutionary War, Haynes was already an enlisted Minuteman at the time and marched west from Granville the very next day to help pin down the British forces holding Boston. He had enlisted the previous year after turning 21, as that birthday had brought an end to his indentured servitude. Bogan suspects that the poem was written in 1775, within a month or so of the Battle of Lexington, and thus possibly while the young Minuteman was serving at Boston. While Haynes, still 21 at the time, identifies himself in a prefatory inscription as a young mulatto, there is nothing in the poem itself that would suggest the author's race. He does speak of being ready to die rather than live as a slave, but this clearly refers to resisting British tyranny over the colonies and not chattel slavery. Something changed then by the time he wrote Liberty Further Extended, which focuses squarely on the unjustifiable evil of enslaving Africans. Bogan suspects this essay was first drafted before July of 1776, but revised after the 4th of that month, as it begins with an epigraph from the Declaration of Independence. Surprisingly, at no point in his essay does Haynes use the word Americans, except when he's quoting from Hart. Haynes instead frames the issue as one of Englishmen asserting their right to liberty in the face of oppression by other Englishmen, writing, To affirm that an Englishman has a right to his liberty is a truth which has been so clearly evinced, especially of late, that to spend time in illustrating this would be but superfluous tautology. But I query whether liberty is so contracted a principle as to be confined to any nation under heaven. Nay, I think it not hyperbolical to affirm that even an African has equally as good a right to his liberty in common with Englishmen. In this way, Haynes downplays the difference between the white men on the two sides of this conflict in which he too was fighting, the better to highlight the racial oppression that was going on daily within the United States. The point is not that he sees no difference at all between the two sides, or was unsure of the patriot cause. Rather, he seeks to show that you can say you are on the side of liberty only if you support the extension of freedom to enslaved Africans. For Haynes, freedom is bestowed upon us by God. It is not for any created power to take away, whether the infringement of freedom is committed by a state regime like the British or by a private slaveholder. Thus he writes, Liberty is a jewel which was handed down to man from the cabinet of heaven and is coeval with his existence, and as it proceeds from the supreme legislature of the universe, so it is he which hath a sole right to take away. Therefore, he that would take away a man's liberty assumes a prerogative that belongs to another and acts out of his own domain. To deprive another of liberty, on this view, is blasphemously to consider oneself equal with God. 
In another memorable part of the essay, one of the sections in which he sets out to show that arguments used to defend slavery are all lame and defective, Haynes takes on an argument that one might expect a predestinarian Christian thinker like himself to have trouble rejecting. This is the claim that those Negroes that are emigrated into these colonies are brought out of a land of darkness under the meridian light of the gospel, and so it is a great blessing instead of a curse. Haynes, however, has no trouble with this at all. Relying on the Book of Romans, he first refutes the idea that one can justifiably choose to do evil so that good may come. Such motivation in no way evades, but rather invites damnation, which we may take as another reminder that we cannot appropriate to ourselves the position of God. If it is true that God can bring good out of evil, even an evil so monstrous as slavery, that is no excuse for humans who take part in the evil. Haynes also adds that in any case, those involved in the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the colonies clearly do not aim at the spiritual good of their slaves. On the coast of Africa, they do not encourage wholesome conduct, but rather stimulate through their demand for slaves quarrelings and bloodshed, while in the colonies slaves are generally kept under the greatest ignorance. The idea that slavery is a benefit to Africans is, according to Haynes, merely a fraudulent excuse for the greed and laziness that truly motivate those involved in slavery. Why did Haynes never complete and publish this powerful text? There are signs that he felt it was too radical. We can see from his handwritten adjustments of the text that he twice inserted lines defending violent insurrection against slavery before thinking better of it and crossing the lines out. Whatever his reasons for not publishing Liberty further extended, 1776 also turned out to be the year he moved decisively toward his destiny as a preacher. Still living with the Rose family, he was often asked to read at their Saturday evening devotion. One such evening, he held a book of sermons but read not from the book itself, but from a text he had written that he had slipped into the book. Mr. Rose, delighted by the edifying words, wondered whose they were. He suspected George Whitefield, whom we mentioned last episode as the preacher eulogized by Phyllis Wheatley in one of her early poems. It's Lemuel's sermon, confessed the young man. From this moment on, Haynes's path to the ministry was supported and encouraged by many. In 1780, a number of respected ministers signed a document certifying that he was qualified to preach. The first sermon he preached, after being licensed, used the opening verse from Psalm 97, according to which the Lord reigneth, to ask whether the supremacy of God counts as a kind of tyranny. God's supremacy may seem incompatible with human freedom, and thus with the possibility of virtue and even the need for human initiative. Haynes responds by arguing that salvation properly understood requires activity and exertion in the form of repentance and faith, so it is contradictory to think salvation is compatible with a failure to strive for virtue. And God is no tyrant. His enemies may be frightened to discover that they are in his hands, but the thought of his omnipotence should provide those of us who are careful to seek salvation with a sense of security. In 1785, Haynes was officially ordained, becoming the first black preacher in the United States to be recognized in this way. Three years later, he delivered a sermon called The Influence of Civil Government on Religion. While featuring no mention of slavery, this sermon is an important record of Haynes's views on the purpose of government in a free society. He emphasizes first that God, in his omnipotence, could achieve his aims in the world without the intervention of human legislative authority. So the question is not whether we could do without government, but rather why government is, if not necessary, then at least helpful. Haynes claims, 
When we consider the obvious end for which civil government was instituted, it is easy to see that it was designed as a support to virtue, to oppose the impetuous torrent of iniquity, to humanize the soul, and to conduct men in the way of felicity are objects to which the laws of God and those which are commonly called the laws of men do mutually point. Haynes explains that by protecting our lives and interests, human legislative authority enables us to focus on seeking after God. What then was going on in the government of Haynes's own day? The president at the time was John Adams. Haynes was a strong supporter of the Federalist Party, to which the first president, George Washington, was sympathetic, even if he was officially nonpartisan, and which Adams led. Haynes was such an advocate for the Federalists that we find him defending one of the most controversial decisions of the Adams administration in this sermon on civil government. Historians tend to look back on the Alien and Sedition Acts, which curtailed immigration and freedom of the press, as shameful constraints on American freedom. Haynes, however, defends the suppression of sedition by arguing that private individuals have recourse to the law for satisfaction when they are subjects of libel, how much more important then is it to protect the character of a chief magistrate or of a whole country from wicked and baseless forms of criticism? If this controversial stance already shows that Haynes ran into tough questions concerning the limitations of rights and freedoms, then his 4th of July address from 1801, entitled The Nature and Importance of True Republicanism, shows that he continued to wrestle with these questions as time went on. He attempts in this speech to give a definition of republicanism, a word he equates as synonymous with independence and with liberty. What all these terms amount to, he claims, is the pursuit of a certain goal, namely to defend and secure the natural rights of men, which are those privileges, whether civil or sacred, that the God of nature has given us. But how do we know what counts as a natural right or God-given privilege? Haynes tells us. To know what this charter comprises, we are to view them in their relation to society at large, when they are congenial with this object, we ought most cheerfully to fall in with the design, and view ourselves as breathing the very spirit and life of true liberty. Notice here what might be the lasting effect of Levi Hart's definition of liberty as the unconstrained ability to act for the public good. Haynes takes the position that the value of individual rights must be justified in relation to the good of the community as a whole, rather than through a focus on the desires of individuals themselves. This speech is one of two published works of his where we find him returning to the topic of slavery. He contrasts republican government with monarchical government in order to congratulate the United States for leaving behind the various hierarchical distinctions between royalty, nobility, and commoners that he believes led Europe into conflict and a divide between knowledgeable elites and ignorant masses. But his praise is tempered with criticism. The propriety of this idea will appear strikingly evident by pointing you to the poor Africans among us. What has reduced them to their present pitiful abject state? Is it any distinction that the God of nature hath made in their formation? Nay, but being subjected to slavery by the cruel hands of oppressors, they have been taught to view themselves as a rank of beings far below others, which has suppressed, in a degree, every principle of manhood, and so they have become despised, ignorant, and licentious. This shows the effect of despotism, and should fill us with the utmost detestation against every attack on the rights of men, while we cherish and diffuse with a laudable ambition that heaven-born liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. After this illustration, Haynes goes back to comparing other lands run by tyrants with the far more peaceful regions of North America. 
he does not hammer home the point that he has just located despotism and tyranny within North America itself. There's a similar and perhaps even greater circumspection in his other criticisms of slavery, which can be found in a sermon called Dissimulation Illustrated, delivered on the occasion of George Washington's birthday in 1814. In this sermon, he celebrates the fact that Washington, a hero of his, provided for the emancipation of slaves in his will. The sermon is most notable, however, for the way Haynes uses the occasion to harshly criticize President James Madison's administration for its pursuit of what we now know as the War of 1812. He calls it a duty of those called upon to go to war, to examine whether the cause is just, and claims that a defensive war can only be vindicated unless where there is an express command from God, as in the case of Israel's going to war with the nations devoted to destruction. Speaking as a veteran of the Revolutionary War, which he still believes was just in its cause, he condemns the War of 1812 as failing by this standard, that is to say, it is not, in his view, a war of self-defense. One pretext given for the war was that Britain's Royal Navy would sometimes press American sailors into service. Haynes quotes a Reverend Worcester, who said, Our president can talk feelingly on the subject of the impressment of our seamen. I am glad to have him feel for them, yet in his own state, Virginia, there were in the year 1800 no less than 343, 796 human beings held in bondage for life. Haynes then adds, I ask, would it be the duty of these slaves to rise and massacre their masters, or for us to advise them to such measures? Partial affection or distress for some of our fellow creatures, while others, even under our notice, are wholly disregarded, betrays dissimulation. It's certainly rhetorically effective to point out the threat of slave rebellion, but the suggestion that this would be a bad thing recalls his decision to suppress the endorsement of violent resistance by slaves even in his unpublished draft of liberty further extended. Haynes decried hypocrisy, but remained wary of following his own denunciations of tyranny to their logical conclusion. And indeed, Haynes's most popular work, which appeared in no fewer than 70 editions between 1805 and 1860, had nothing to do with slavery, but was rather an attack on the concept of universal salvation, proposed by the universalist theologian Hosea Balu. Balu believed that, given the infinite and perfect goodness of God, all souls would be redeemed, indeed allowed to enter paradise immediately upon death. Haynes responded to this with a satirical sermon, in which he compared Balu to Satan, falsely promising Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that they would not die if they tasted from the tree of good and evil. Haynes wittily concluded that universal salvation is no newfangled scheme but can boast of great antiquity, and that Balu's doctrine is unfortunately likely to find many adherents given that Satan is still so successful in seducing humans to believe falsehood. Another memorable instance of Haynes's biting wit returns us to his political views. While his beloved Federalist Party was no longer a political force by the time Andrew Jackson won the presidency in 1828, Haynes remained opposed to the Democratic Party that Jackson represented, just as he had previously opposed its predecessor, the Democratic-Republican Party, headed by Thomas Jefferson and then James Madison. Right after Jackson's election, Haynes came across a group of supporters in a hotel dining room who asked him to propose a toast to the new president. Haynes obliged, raising his glass and saying, Andrew Jackson, Psalm 109, verse 8. Only after Haynes had left did someone look up the passage and discover that it read, Let his days be few, and let another take his office. 
Also worth mentioning before we close the episode is Haynes's account of an extraordinary experience that he had in 1819. Two brothers were imprisoned for a murder they insisted they had not committed. Haynes visited them in jail and offered them spiritual ministry and became convinced that they were indeed innocent. Then, just weeks before a death sentence would be carried out, the supposed murder victim turned up in town, crazier than ever but unmistakably alive, as one scholar has put it in describing this bizarre turn of events. The miraculous deliverance became the basis for another publication by Haynes, which is both an early entry in the genre of true crime narrative and a powerful assertion of the reality of divine providence. As a Calvinist, Haynes saw God's hand in all events, of course, but with the salvation of the two accused brothers, divine influence and mercy were unusually evident. One wishes once again that Haynes would have drawn out the obvious relevance of the story for the debate over slavery, as he waxes poetic on the pitiable state of the innocents who lost their freedom and celebrates their liberation from bondage. We should never fail to recognize, however, that until his death in 1833, Haynes lived an extraordinary life in very difficult times for people of African heritage. After serving for 30 years as a pastor in Rutland, Vermont, from 1788 to 1818, he was dismissed from his position. The reason for this, according to one report of what he privately thought of the matter, was that they finally became overly conscious of the disrepute of having a black preacher. He preached afterward in Manchester, Vermont, before finally pastoring a church in Granville, New York, not to be confused with Granville, Massachusetts, where he grew up. His house in South Granville, New York, is today a national historic site. Having spent time in this episode and the last on remarkable figures who wrote in the 1770s in what would become in that decade the United States of America, we will next travel over the Atlantic Ocean, shifting our focus from New England to the original version. We'll be meeting Ignatius Sancho, an equally remarkable figure living and writing in 1770s London. Sancho, who was at this time the only black person qualified to vote in elections in Great Britain, is best known for his artfully written letters, which were published after his death in 1780 to widespread acclaim. So, P.S., don't forget to join us next time for a discussion of the philosophical dimensions of the epistolary art of Ignatius Sancho, next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell him I had hard trials Tell him I had